Every year, thousands of people show up across this great United States of America and across Canada to be a part of the Global Leadership Summit for two days in August. We already know what the days are next year. I believe it's August 6 and 7, and people have already signed up for next year. And then it goes global. It goes across Europe. It goes across Africa. It, it goes across Southeast Asia. It goes to Australia. It's, it's everywhere people want to grow in their leadership. And people just keep saying, please bring it to us. Please bring it to us. It's not the most perfect leadership training program in the world, but for my money, pound for pound, it's the best and most powerful leadership program in the world. And it's been going on for 25 years. And I've been to each and every one because each and every year I need to grow. I need to figure something out. I need to know what's going on inside and I need to figure out what's going on outside. And invariably God will show up through a speaker who just nails it right on the head for what I need to know and do and become. And that happened this year. So people are showing up. Let me take you back 2,000 years ago to show you that showing up has been a theme in history. This is the, the biggest theater in ancient times, the biggest amphitheater in ancient times, city of Ephesus in Turkey. There it is. It is absolutely stunning. Imagine sitting there. Imagine being inspired there. Imagine saying to your friend, hey, let's go there and see what's happening there. And so people showing up to events has been going on forever and ever. It's what we do. It's what we need. Here's another great amphitheater that I like to go to. It's in, it's in New York City. It's the house that Ruth built, even though it's the new house now that, that Ruth built. And when I go, I get inspired and I get filled up because that's what we need as men and women. But there's a question that hangs in the air this morning, and it's going to be like a thread that goes through everything that we're going to do in the next 35 minutes. Here's the question. Who is Gabby? Who is Gabby? John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now let's pause there for just a moment. You have these big amphitheater moments. You have these big stadium moments. You have these big conference moments when we show up for a couple hours or for a day and we're looking for something, give me something, make me know something new, feel something new so I can do something new with my life. But none of it matters unless afterwards you step into 
a very intimate, personal moment with God. A very intimate, personal moment with God. A moment with God and maybe a friend. A moment with God and maybe a small group. A moment with God and maybe a, a Bible study. A moment with God and maybe, maybe a, a prayer or a retreat. There's, there, there are these smaller moments that God announces. He did hillside moments. Jesus did hillside moments with thousands of people. But then he did moments with just his disciples. And these are the moments that ask the question, who is Gabby? And one of those moments is about to happen right now. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Simon Peter's looking at things, Peter's watching things. He sees Jesus, you know, get this towel thing going on and uh, he sees him like he's washing feet and it's like coming down closer to him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied. In other words, Peter's going, uh-uh. I don't think we're going to do this. Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. I'm not allowing this. I'm not allowing this. When you say, I'm not allowing this to God, you are always on the wrong side of the equation, my friends. You can't say that. You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter thinks about it, gets a, an insight, and he goes, then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Let's have a shower. Let's have a bath. Just let's go the whole nine yards. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Take that little moment. How long is it going to take him to put on his clothes and get back to his place a minute two minutes but there's dead silence they're just their eyes are glued to him and then he asks the question do you understand what i have done for you he asked them you call me teacher and lord and rightly so for that is what i am now that i your lord and teacher have washed your feet you also should wash one another's feet. This was the work of a slave. This is the work of a servant. I took the work of a servant upon myself and honored you. Now you should do this, work of a servant, to honor each other. I have set you an example I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And in that moment, he's asking a question. Who is Gabby? Who is Gabby? The first speaker I've chosen to present to you this morning is Devon Franklin. Devon Franklin is a Hollywood producer Hollywood, 
I just went to see his latest movie, Breakthrough. I saw it a couple of weeks ago or maybe a month or so ago. Great story, and it's a story about how prayer brings a miracle into a family's life. And it's, it's got honesty in it. It's got people in church aggravated with each other in it, so you know it's true. It's got, uh, no pun intended for who we are today, but it's got people getting sideways with each other and, and like not understanding each other, but it moves inexorably toward this, this powerful moment of prayer that changes everybody's life and the life of this family and the life of this church. It's a great movie. He went to Hollywood when he was about 18 years of age and he had to face a certain reality. I call this the story of your difference. He is CEO of the multimedia production company, Franklin Entertainment, and has produced the hit films, Miracles from Heaven, The Star, and Breakthrough. Named one of the top 10 producers to watch by Variety magazine, Devon is dedicated to empowering the masses through entertainment. Please welcome Devon to the summit. Uh, people told me, uh, Devon, uh, there, there are very few people of color that have been successful in Hollywood. And there's been even fewer who have been bold and open about their faith uh, to make it in Hollywood. So you're going to have to tone some of that down and fit in to who they want you to be. Oh, I got to talk to somebody right now. It's so interesting how people want you to fit in to their limited idea of who you are, not who you really are. Be careful whose advice you get on your path to embracing your difference. It's important to keep the edges of your difference sharp. You cannot sand them down to fit into someone's limited idea of who you are and where you're supposed to go. Not everybody is going to embrace your difference, but as long as you do, you can go everywhere you're designed to be. In the first internship interview that I had at 18 years old, I went in and was uh, trying to get a job working as an uh, intern for Will Smith. Anybody heard of Will Smith? All right, give it up for Will, give it up for Will. Blue Genie, Aladdin, all that, yeah. So here's what was so interesting. At 18 years old, I was faced with a dilemma. I'm in the internship interview, and, and the person interviewing me asked me, is there anything else you want us to know? And I said, well, uh, I'm a Christian, and I observe the Sabbath, so if taking this internship would require me to work on the Sabbath, unfortunately, I will not take it. Stop. Too often... We think we have to compromise to open a door of destiny. May I submit for your consideration that your difference is the key to opening the door of your destiny. You cannot allow anyone to make you think you can't be who you are and still find success. May I ask you a question? What compromises have you been making to fit into doors that are too small to handle who you really are? You are bigger than you give yourself credit to. You, 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 if you had a glimpse of how big your life is, you would no longer allow yourself to fit into the limited version of other people's idea for your life. As a matter of fact, you would own everything in your life so you could become exactly who you've been destined to be. Rewind the tape from where we are right now. I can't do a moonwalk. I can do a slide walk. Rewind the tape. I'm in seminary. I'm 30-something years of age. Our daughter Ashley is about a year old. I'm now in sort of like the middle phase of being in seminary. And I try, I'm really trying to figure this whole thing out. Why am I there? What am I going to be? So I go see Dr. Hughes. And I say to Dr. Hughes, I don't want to be a pastor. 
I don't want to be a pastor. Dr. Hughes looks at me and he says, Michael, you have in your mind an idea about what a pastor is that you really don't like, you don't resonate with that, but here's, here's the truth. God can use you just like you are, just like you are to be a pastor. And what he was saying to me was exactly what Devon is saying in his experience in life years later. My difference was my destiny. I thought differently. I thought more creatively. I wanted to use artistic means and wanted to use a lot of video in what I did. I wanted to use drama and everything that I did. I used to use video and drama stuff ever before even before I went to seminary. It was just the way I thought about teaching and how about how to move people. I used to use media and all kinds of things when I was in college as a, as a sophomore, junior in college. I used to use that and instead of doing a paper, I would do a cassette tape and hand it in for my final paper. And the professor said, yes, you can do that. I was different, I was always different. Where are you different? Where are you different? As a parent, where are you different as a business owner? Where are you different as an employee? Your difference creates your future, creates your destiny. It makes you unique. It makes you able to do things that other people can't do. And that's the point. You have within you something amazing that can touch other people's lives if you let yourself be who you are and don't get caught up in the environment that says, well, you can't say that, or you can't do that, or you can't try that. So I don't know where that is in your life right now, but there is some place in your life where you are limiting yourself, but your difference is your destiny. So get in touch with your inner Devon Franklin, who interned for Will Smith, and get in touch with the story of your difference. Maybe you're 16 and you need to hear that, for the very first time. Maybe you're 76 and you need to hear that for the very first time, but all of us are there sooner or later. We're either letting people define us or we're letting God define us. Second story. Uh, this guy I thought it was fascinating. He used three words to cover everything you need to know about leadership. Just three words, and you're going to hear them right now. I call this the story of Fry. Todd's latest book, Herding Tigers, is a practical handbook for every manager charged with leading teams to creative brilliance. Let's welcome Todd Henry. I believe that every creative professional should aim for three things. I think we should aim to be prolific, to be brilliant, and to be healthy all at the same time. Prolific meaning doing a lot of work because we have to do that. Brilliant meaning doing good work because we also have to do that. But healthy meaning that we're working in a sustainable way. The problem is it's really difficult to get all three of these right. For example, we can be prolific, meaning we're doing a lot of work, and brilliant, meaning we're doing good work. But we miss on the healthy piece. We miss on the sustainability piece. And there's a technical term I coined for these people, and it's fried. <laughs> These are the walking zombies that haunt the hallways of our organizations. And listen, here's the thing. This works for a while. It does. 
But if you don't get the healthy piece right, you will eventually lose the prolific and the brilliant piece as well because you're not a machine, I'm not a machine, we're not machines. We can't function indefinitely this way. So this isn't gonna work for us. And of course, we can also be healthy, meaning that we're working sustainably, and we can be brilliant, meaning we're actually doing good work, but we're not prolific enough to keep up with organizational demand. And there's a term for these people, it's unreliable. Because we can't be counted on to deliver when it matters most. And we all know those people we don't really want on our project team. None of them are in this room, of course. None of them are watching right now. But we all know those people because they can't be counted on to keep up with everyone else. And of course, that won't work. And just to close the loop, of course, we could be prolific, meaning we're doing a lot of work. And we could be healthy, meaning we're working sustainably. But our work is terrible. It's awful. Certainly not brilliant. And there's a technical term for these people in teams, and it's fired. <laughs> Because you're not going to keep your job for very long if you're not producing consistently great work. So, leaders, people of influence, the first question I have for you today is this. If this were your definition of success, how would you be doing right now? If you were measuring your effectiveness as a leader by asking, is my team prolific, brilliant, and healthy, how would you be doing right now? So here's your homework. You go home and you sit down and you take out a, a napkin or like my dad used to do when I grew up and then he used to do this. He would take a paper plate. He would write everything out on a paper plate and like leave it for you. So um, you write down prolific, brilliant, healthy, and then you say, how am I doing? How am I doing? Am I, am I producing good stuff? Am I producing stuff that makes sense, that's, that's helping my family grow, helping my family be a better family. I'm a better mom, I'm a better dad, I'm a better friend, I'm a better employee. It's helping the business I go to work better, the school I go to work better. Am I being healthy in my choices? We're gonna look at that idea just a little bit later with another speaker. But, you know, am, am I sustainable in what I'm doing? You know, the first year, of the Leadership Summit, we had done church for a whole year, and I had been the main speaker for just about every Sunday, and also for some, some midweek services that we were doing. I was fried. I was fried. And I got to go out to Willow Creek, and I told this story to some Willow Creek staff members. It was as if I crawled onto the campus like exhausted, on empty, I had nothing left. If I had to come back to Virginia Beach immediately, I had nothing to come back with, nothing to give. But by being there for several days, I think it was two and a half days of, of the conference at that point, it was like God just, just tanked me up from the bottom of my feet to the top of my head, and I was, I was a new person. Where do you do that? Where do you become a new person? Person. I was just in Ocracoke for a few days. I became a new person. You know, I could go down to the beach here. We live in Virginia Beach, but I drive 200 miles to go to the beach with my grandchildren and Gail to experience a whole different kind of being healthy. Where do you do that? And then you write those, those words down and you say, how are we doing in our company? How are we doing in our work together? How are we doing on our team? 
And all of a sudden, with three words, you have a diagnostic tool that can start to write some different stories for your future so you don't have to write the story of pride. Liz Bohannon, at 22 years of age, bought a one-way ticket to Uganda because she couldn't figure out anything else to do. She was kind of stuck. She kind of knew she wanted to do something. She had invented this idea of a sandal that could easily be made. She wanted a flip-flop. Liz it didn't flip flop of so finding your passion like and instead uses her entrepreneurial journey to explore 14 actionable like principles for not finding Uganda but building a life to, to of purpose, passion and impact. And Please give a warm life. summit welcome to Liz Bohannon. I'm just going to say, listen, you just got to go out there and you got to find your passion. Oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. I misread my notes. Actually, you're never gonna find your passion. Um, because here's what pluckies know. They know that you don't find your passion, but you can build it. And that's an incredibly important difference that we're gonna, that we're gonna learn about. Next up, okay, and obviously this one is for real. If there is anything you guys could take away from today, I want you to know how incredibly each and every one of you are so average. Um, I'm sorry, but statistically speaking, this is how averages work. Like, we are all mostly hanging out somewhere in the middle of the bell curve. But the good news is, what pluckies know is that you don't actually have to be above average in talent or intellect to live an above average life. In fact, I believe that if you can just, if we can just get over ourselves and freaking own our average, that we will actually go on to build extraordinary lives of purpose and passion and impact. My hope is that if you are here with us today, it is because you are at a point in your journey where you realize that leadership isn't about just kind of building your own little kingdom and making your own life better but instead thinking about how you can use your power and your privilege in your platform to make the world a little bit better for others as well. But for those of you in this incredibly noble journey, I want to remind you that nobody needs or wants you to be their hero. You know, over the last decade of running this do good business, just gonna be really honest with you guys. I have become increasingly uncomfortable with this dichotomy that exists between the do-gooders and the world changers and their beneficiaries, between the givers and the receivers. I saw it very clearly when I showed up to Uganda as a 22-year-old who didn't know anything and had nothing to offer, and somehow I was seen as this you know, philanthropic giver for just going in the first place which I think meant that my friends in Uganda were supposed to play this role of like grateful beneficiary. No, you guys, we were created to live in community. And community is when we do this sacred dance of giving and receiving, of needing and being needed. At any time, in any relationship, we start to get confused and think that our status or our circumstance or our season is the permanent role that we are meant to play in relationship or community, we strip others and ourselves, frankly, of the dignity of being these complex, multifaceted humans. 
each and every one of us in our own unique ways, terribly broken and brilliantly bright. The role of leaders is not to be the hero of anyone else's story, but rather to do the hard work in ourselves so that we can inspire and equip others to be the hero of theirs. What Liz is, is congruent with is John 13. She's really talking about how do we get down and wash feet so that we give others a better perspective on what community is all about. When I get to go to Togo, West Africa, there's a pastor that I work with. His name is Pastor Michelle. And over the years, I've seen him grow in influence. Over the years, I've seen him grow in his, uh, in his position within his country to serve others. And, and just recently, he told me that the government has asked him to run for mayor of that region of Togo, which is be kind of like running for mayor of Virginia Beach or mayor of an area that's like a county. And, and the reason they're asking him is because of the water projects that we've done with him and for him and we have washed his feet and we have served him and God is raising him up. He doesn't need a hero, but people need to look to him as a guy who lives there, who works there, who serves there, who preaches there, as somebody that they can trust, as somebody that can help them write their future. And it's this understanding of we're not out to be anybody's hero. We're just out to wash feet. We're just here to serve. Liz has a multi-million dollar organization now that just started out with tying flip-flops on your feet with ribbon, and she's not anybody's hero. She's just there to serve. She's just there to ask the question, who is Gabby? Now, the next speaker did something with four chairs and a ball. If you take this home, you will have a deeper understanding of your life. You'll have a deeper understanding of everyone's life around you. Because sooner or later, these four chairs and a ball tell the story of our lives. Let me tell you the story of chaos. She co-founded Infinitum, Brave Global, Amplify Peace, and the Women's Speakers Collective. Host of the DJ Strickland podcast, Danielle is also the author of several books, including The Ultimate Exodus, Finding Freedom from What Enslaves You. Let's welcome back Daniel Strickland to the summit stage. See, my family's not new to transition. We have uh, lived in different countries. We've lived in different cultures, different socioeconomic backgrounds. And uh, one of these changes, we were able to go to this family camp. And the family camp is designed to help people moving from one culture to another culture, to, to help, designed to help them through the process of what that, that's like. And, and, and in this uh, camp, they did this reenactment of what they call the transition bridge. They asked for a volunteer, actually. There was a whole bunch of us. And my seven-year-old son, Judah, at the time, he put up his hand. And the instructor said, come on up, Judah, and hop up on the first stage of transition, which she said, this is the settled stage of transition. How did you feel in the country that was your home? And Judah went on a lot too long about how it felt to his room, what his room was like, and his friends, and how everything he loved about his home. And she said, yeah, that's how it feels at the first stage of transition. It just feels settled. It feels like home. 
And then she said, I want you to move to the second stage. Can you walk on this part of the bridge? And Judah walked, but he had to kind of hold on to the chair because it got shaky because this is the stage of transition called unsettled. <laughs> this is the disturbing transition. And, and, and she said to Judah, how did it feel when you found out you were moving to a whole new country you've never been? And Judah said, it felt just like this. It felt scary, and I felt sad, and I wasn't sure what was going to happen, and I, I felt this hum of uncertainty. And she said, yeah, that's how it feels when you're at this stage of transition. And then she said, honey, why don't you come to the third stage of transition? And, and, and this is a big exercise ball, and it was wrapped in sort of this cellophane, so it was even slippy. And Judah's only seven years old, but he wasn't born yesterday. And he knew just one look. He's like, I can't stand on that without wiping out. So he just like looked over to where our family was, and he just like mouthed the words, like panicked to our family, help me. <laughs> And before the words were even out of his mouth, my 16-year-old son, six foot two, he runs to his side and he grabs Judah by his elbows and holds up his weight. And he says to him, I've got you, buddy. I've got you. And my son confidently with his older brother holding his mostly weight transitioned to the third stage, which is called chaos. And the instructor said to my son, how did it feel when you had left what you knew but you weren't quite at where you were going. Maybe it was on the plane or in a country in between, but how did it feel when you had left everything familiar, but you hadn't gotten to the new place yet? And Judah said it felt equal parts scary and exciting. And she said, yeah, that's how it feels at that stage. And then she invited Judah to go to the fourth stage of transition, which feels a lot like the second, because it feels a lot like the second, because you've arrived in the new place. She said, how did it feel when you finally arrived in this new country? And he said, it felt kind of exciting. I liked my room. I met some new friends on my block. I saw the school I'm going to go to. And she said, great. Anything else? And he said, yeah, it still doesn't feel like home. And she said, yeah, that's how it feels until it doesn't feel like that anymore. And finally, you arrive at a new normal. So what chair are you in? Or are you on that ball of chaos? Because sooner or later, we're going to go through a transition. It might be a business transition. It might be some kind of a health crisis life transition. It might be something that's called a divorce when everything that you thought was stable in that first chair now becomes that ball in the middle and it's like you don't know how you're going to stand up anymore until you end up back in a new normal. We're all going from there to there and everywhere in between throughout our lives. And you can know where you are by just visualizing it now. You can say, I'm, I'm home, I'm good, everything's great. When it all starts to wobble a little bit, you go, I'm in that first stage of transition. I'm hitting the chaos. But now I'm getting on the other side of the chaos, and it's a little wobbly, but I'm sort of getting there, and then you're in a new normal over here. You're all in one of those stages, and each one of us is. So you can help somebody. You can be a good friend to somebody by being with them when they're in the chaos. Or you can be a good friend to somebody when they're in that wobbly stage on either side of the chaos. And you can celebrate with somebody when they're in their home and everything is good and wonderful and it's all like working right or when they're in their new normal. It's a great picture that helps us to define everything about our lives. Joe Saxon 
said that we need to, needed to level our leadership by asking three questions. So you're gonna get a question at the beginning, a question at the end, and a story in the middle. And I call this the story of three questions. Saxton executive produces and co-hosts the podcast, Lead Stories, Tales of Leadership and Life with Steph O'Brien, and is the author of three books, including The Dream of You. Let's give a warm welcome to Joe Saxton. So let's ask ourselves some questions right now. Question one, who were you before anyone told you who you were supposed to be? Next question, to help us level up on our leadership. If your body could talk to you, what would it want to say? It began as an ordinary and unremarkable day. My husband went to work, my kids went to school in our normal fashion, which is loud, organized chaos. Except one thing, there was one thing that was different, and it was the strange pace of my heart. It was beating weirdly, faster than usual, harder than usual, and it was hurting. So I ignored it, and I decided I was busy and I had other things to do. The next day, I woke up and my heart was beating strangely, beating faster than normal, harder than normal, so I ignored it harder because I was too busy and I didn't have time for this. On the third day, with my strangely pacing, beating strangely, in kind of pain heart, I decided to call my doctor and immediately he sent me to urgent care. After three days of avoidance, there I am, and in minutes, in minutes, I'm in a robe, in a bed, with multiple electrodes attached to me and a machine monitoring me. Finally, I had to pay close attention to what was happening in my heart. I started talking first to God and then to myself, asking, how did I get here? My third and final question when we think about what it means to level up our leadership, is who are your people? About 12 years ago, I asked a mentor of mine for some leadership tips and her responses stayed with me. She said, as you grow in experience and influence and opportunity, there is one thing I hope for you. I hope that you have friends. It may not be lots of people, maybe a few. You'll need friends for when it's hard, but you'll really need friends for the good times too. You'll need friends for the loneliness that is a reality for every leader. So that's what I pray for for you. I pray for friends. What's your body saying to you right now? Are you listening to it? What's going on inside of your mind? Is there just a lot of stuff that's swirling around because you're on that chaos ball right now? And maybe your mind and maybe your body is saying, you need to go talk to somebody. And you're saying, no, no, in my family, we don't, we don't do that. And your body and your mind are saying, yeah, you better talk to somebody because it's not going to get any better without talking to somebody. I remember walking by the office of a church business administrator in a church I, I worked at a long time ago before Spring Branch. And uh, retired Navy guy showed up at work every day, always like did his job. You know, he was always there. His face was ashen white. I remember thinking, I 
wonder why he, he kind of looks like that. It was just ash and white. Turns out he was really, really sick. But he wasn't listening to his body. He wasn't, you know, going to the doctor. But he did because he had a heart attack and he had to go. His body forced him to go. And so you got to listen. What is going on? And you have to know that you got a friend somewhere in life. I had a, a friend one time who was a quadriplegic. He talked to me about friendship and he said, Michael, if, if in your life you end up with one good friend, you are way ahead of just about every other person on the planet. Just one good friend. Somebody that's going to be with you no matter what happens, with you in the wobbly chairs, with you on the chaos ball, like, like that kid whose brother came and picked him up and said, I got you, I got you. Somebody who's going to ask you the hard questions. Somebody who's going to not let you get away with living a cheap life or a cheap discipleship or a cheap Christian experience. Somebody who's going to look you in the eye and say, I love you so much, I'm never giving up on you. That's the kind of friend you got to have. So where is that friend? Who is that? And the truth is kind of what she said. A lot of us are just kind of lonely. A lot of us have superficial friendships. In my high school yearbook, underneath my picture, it says, he is wealthy in his friends. And a few months after graduation, I was the, the loneliest person in New Jersey. Didn't know who to connect to. Didn't know what to do. But I was, I was wealthy in my friends. Who is that person for you? Are you listening to your body? You've got to have these three questions in your life. Then there's the story of two kinds of leadership. Patrick Lencioni, he just waxes brilliant. I hope you can listen to his whole message at some point. And, uh, and he says, really, really, there's only two kinds of leadership. Summit stage, we are delighted to welcome back Patrick Lencioni. Patrick is the founder of The Table Group and author of 11 best-selling books which have sold more than 5 million copies and been translated into some 30 languages. I think a lot fewer people in the world should become a leader. I know. <laughs> Wrong place to say that. <laughs> Everyone has influence, and they probably shouldn't, you know? <laughs> but what I mean by that is this. Do you know when you go to a, you know when you go to a graduation ceremony and the leader stands up there and says, okay, young people, I want all of you to go out and be a leader. I want to stand up and go, no, don't be a leader unless you're doing it for the right reason, and most of you probably aren't. Why would you want to be, be a leader in the first place? And if your why is wrong, if your motive is off, all the hows in the world won't matter. In fact, many of the hows won't make any sense. And here's how I discovered this. Uh, a, a number of years ago, I was in Palm Springs, and I was at a, a leadership conference where they, they had me sit down with 20 CEOs in the suite upstairs at the hotel and spend a bunch of time answering their questions. They were just telling me about their situations in their life and, and things they were going through at work, and they were asking for my advice. And so I was giving them my advice, and I noticed that a few of the CEOs in the room were dismissing much of what I had to say, which I thought was weird because, as my son will tell you, I'm never wrong. 
And so I was like, what's wrong with these people? No, I mean, I, I love to be disagreed with. And I was like, but there was something consistent and very interesting about what they were pushing back on me about. And I realized later, I started thinking about it. I was like, why did they keep doing that? And what was it they were disagreeing with me about? And I realized that these guys and gals, I think there was, it was a number of guys in this case, were probably leading for the wrong reason. You see, there's only two reasons to become a leader. One's good and the other's not, at the most basic level. The only reason to be a leader is because you want to do whatever you need to do to serve the people you lead. You need to be responsible. I call it responsibility-based leadership, and that is there's lots of things that only the leader can do, and if the leader doesn't do them, nobody else will, and they're hard, and that's why you became a leader. Some people call this servant leadership, which I love in some ways because Jesus, my Lord and Savior, is the role model for leadership, and I don't want to diminish. He's God's son, but, but, and, and he's God. But, but so it's not like, hey, he happened to be a great leader. When people say that, I'm like, I think a little more than that. But the point is, you know... <laughs> but the point is, you know, he came not to be served, but to serve. Now, the only reason why I don't like it when people talk about servant leadership is because it implies that there's another kind that's okay. Because <laughs> really, what else is it? If you're not doing that, it's not really leadership. But, the, but the, in the world, there's another kind of leadership that people think is okay, and I call it reward-centered leadership. And that's, I do this because I get stuff for it. And what is that stuff? Well, it could be I get um, attention, notoriety, status, power, even fun. All of those are rewards. And if you go into leadership for the rewards, you are not going to do the things you need to do because many of the things we're supposed to do as leaders don't have a reward. In fact, it's the opposite. And so Patrick Lencioni, who speaks to corporate America, boardrooms all over this country all the time, who's written all these amazing books, about how to be a better business leader and how to be a better person uh, basically says, read John 13. It's the only way it works. Unless you're willing to wash feet, you might as well not get into the, the leadership game. Just so brilliant in its simplicity. Finally, he leads us into the, the last speaker I want to bring to you which was part of their grander vision series that they pepper in through the conference. And this is what I call, Who is Gabby? I was 14 the first time that I went to Guinea Bissau with my dad. Very small country in Western Africa, very poor country. I had never seen poverty with my own eyes. Now what I've seen, I can't unsee. And so when I graduated university, I was sure, now God's gonna take me to a developing country where I'm gonna be able to use whatever I've learned and just dedicate my life to addressing the poverty that first touched my heart when I was 14. I had the experience, I had the studies, I had the right degree. It seemed like the door was opening, everything was gonna work out, all my plans and everything I had done and the doors kept closing. Was here in Portugal when two friends approached me from church and said, Gabby, uh, have you noticed the migrant and refugee situation in Portugal? We think that 
you actually should stay in Portugal and we should talk and see if there's anything that you can do. And immediately I shut down the conversation and I said, no, absolutely not. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not staying in Portugal. Maybe speak to somebody else because <laughs> it's, not, it's not me. At the same time, I started meeting a few families in Portugal from Nepal, from Iraq, seeing the poverty that they were living in, in my city, that supposedly everybody's comfortable. Supposedly everybody has access to basic needs. And so I realized that this was something missing. I was invited to go to the GLS. John Maxwell was just finishing his session and he was talking about a lady named Gabby and she had intentionally decided to add value to other people's lives. He kind of looked in the camera and as if he was looking straight into my eyes and saying, Who's going to be the next Gabby? Who's going to be the next young lady? Who says I am going to intentionally add value to people every day and make my life count? So that's where I really decided, okay, that I'm, I'm here. I want to be the next Gabby. So instead of going somewhere else, she stayed home and made a difference right there. She said, I, I want to be the next Gabby. Who is Gabby? I am Gabby. You are Gabby. The person sitting next to you is Gabby. The person who's rocking a baby right now is Gabby. The person who encourages our student ministry program is Gabby. The person who says, we've got a, a, a community fund that touches people's lives and I want to give to that is Gabby. The person who says, I'm going to pray for the church that's called Spring Branch Islamabad is Gabby. The person who says, I'm going to join a small group and deepen my faith is Gabby. The person who says, I'm just going to show up and, and fill in any gap that is needed at the church is Gabby. We're all Gabby. We're all foot washers. The person who holds you up when you're standing on the chaos ball is Gabby. The person who's helping you answer the three questions is Gabby. Once you're Gabby, you can't be anything other than a disciple of Jesus Christ being called into the world to be a light in the world, to change things in the world, because you are a foot-washing follower of the one who washes your feet because he gave his life for you. So be Gabby. Be a servant. Announce who you are on the inside and don't let the world define you from the outside. You don't have to be anybody's hero. You can be a part of making somebody else's life heroic. Give your life away. Ask God to do something more than you could hope or imagine wherever you go every single day of the rest of your life. If you want your life to count, be Gabby. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for another Global Leadership Summit. Father, I pray as the summit goes out across the entire world that you would sustain it, that you would fund it through your people, that you would allow men and women from small countries and big countries, from small rural areas to large European cities to be changed, to see Gabby and to want to be Gabby, to understand the, the transition bridge, Father. Just give us these moments, Father. We, we are changed in these moments just as 
the disciples were changed in that moment long ago when Jesus washed their feet. Allow us to be foot washers. Allow us to be gatherers. In Jesus' name.